Well, it is uh, great to see you, Providence. It's always great to sing with you. Um, and if you're a guest here, welcome. We are thrilled that you have uh, joined us on this really special weekend. Uh, there's about 140 people uh, from our church family right now with all of our high school students. And so what we want to do is certainly pray for them. They are... Uh, at a full weekend um, where uh, there's four different sessions. And uh, in fact, while we're meeting right now in about 10 minutes is when they'll start. And so what we want to do is to be faithful as a family of faith to pray that God would capture the hearts of our students. It's, it's so important these weekends. God can do just some amazing things in the lives of our young people that really can ripple from generation to generation. And so we want to pray for them. Uh, we also want to say thank you. Uh, it's important for us to do this because what we find within God God's word is this one central principle, which is uh, which is true for us. It was it was um, seen uh, in God's word in perfect form, and that is this: is that nobody is ever blessed unless someone else sacrifices. That's a reality in this world. And Jesus Christ, in perfected form, sacrificed himself. And as a result of that, we are a blessed people of faith. And yet we also live in a nation that has said that this is a day for us to uh, think back and to thank people who have served in order for us to be free as a people. And so we are a grateful people because so many people have sacrificed. And so we also want to pray uh, for um, all of our veterans. And if you are a veteran, we're uh, grateful uh, for you. So if you would, let's bow, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that shows us what is true and shows us truly how to be a kind person that blesses others. And that is the word of sacrifice. God, we want to be a people that even uses this time right now as we pray to sacrifice effort and energy and part of our heart, Lord, so that other people would be blessed. We thank you, Father, for those in the room who've served this nation. We thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we enjoy. We thank you for this or for these blessings that we enjoy because of so much sacrifice. And we ask God that you would bless them, you would bless their families and we also pray, Father, for those who even have family members overseas right now. Um, we, we ask, God, for your grace in their life. Would you pour out your grace and show yourself strong on their behalf? We pray for our students. We thank you for them and pray that you would use this weekend at Meta to capture their hearts, to capture their attention, that you would help them to see that walking with you and that Jesus, your claims and what you accomplished on this earth is absolutely consequential to their life and not only to this day of their life, but every other day in the future. And so would you do a miracle in the lives of our students and help them to see that your word is true and that your son is the savior of the world. And so we pray now as we open up your word. Thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for inspiring this man. Thank you for calling him into ministry. Thank you for, Lord, inspiring his heart and, Lord, to write down what he said so that even 2,500 years later this morning, we can open up a book that's written by him, that's it's even known by his name, and Lord, that we can learn things that are true. And your word tells us that that which was written in the past was written so that we would be encouraged and that we would have hope by what we read. And so would you help us to see just how contemporary this book is for our application, even though it's old. 
Thank you for Habakkuk. As we open it now, would you speak through weakness, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are in that book. If uh, we would, uh, in fact, I would love for you to go ahead and just turn there. Um, it's a book that for many of us in the room, perhaps we've never read. Some of you have uh, perhaps never even heard the man's name. And yet this man is very similar to us in so many different ways. Just like you and just like me, if you love God, this man, he loved God. Here is this man who wanted God to be known. He, 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 uh, he wanted to please God. He wanted to honor God, just like many of us. And just like us, he looked around his culture and he saw the moral collapse throughout his culture. And it grieved his heart. It causes him to feel a sense of uncertainty and anxiety and anguish, just like many of us. We look around our culture and we see things that are broken. We have seen things this week. We, this is naturally we're supposed to look at it and go, yeah, that's just not right. What I see right there is simply not right. And that's exactly where he was 2,500 years ago. And just like many of us in this room and in this church, this prophet of God, he prayed for God's grace to be poured out. He prayed for help. He prayed for a revival. He prayed that the country would, would literally come back to faith in God, that, would, that they would lay aside all of their sin and that they would look to him. And, and then God did a miracle. And I can't go through the entire history. If you want to hear the whole history, you have to listen to last week. But But the brief history is this, is that God answered his prayers and many others in Israel. And what he did was he brought a new king to the throne. It's pretty amazing to me because this king, his name was Josiah. He was eight, meaning eight years old. So he's probably in his playroom, right? And somebody comes and takes his toys out of his hands and put a crown on his head. And what we find about Josiah's, unlike his dad and his granddad, is that God inclined his heart to him and he loved God and wanted to do what God said pleased him. It's a pretty remarkable thing to where eight years later, when he's 16 years old, is that he wants to actually reform some of the things that his dad and granddad did, which was to actually go into the temple and to clean it out of all the idols that they put in it. So they go in there to clean out the temple and they find the word of God. He's never heard it or read it. And so it's read to him. And suddenly he begins to weep and he says, the whole country needs to hear what God has said to us. And so what we find is that there is this national revival that takes place that spreads over the entire country of Judah. Habakkuk saw this happen. And last week, what I tried to have you at least think about Right, is what would it look like if every sector of our culture actually simultaneously said all in unison, we need to repent and look to God. We need to turn to God in our life. What would that look like? Just imagine if you go home today and literally every single channel on your TV has been interrupted and it's showing a live broadcast of what's taking place in our nation's capital. What happens there is our president and several of the senators, they stand up and they say, we have sinned against God. We've cared more about our arrogance and more about our power and our position than anything else. And as a result of that, we have been cruel. We have been rude. We've been unkind. We repent and we urge the country to do the same. Suddenly they sit down and all of a sudden a bunch of CEOs, they stand up and they get in front of the microphone and they say, 
Country, what we want you to know is that we've been overwhelmed by our own greed. We've been blinded by our own greed. And as a result of that, we have literally ruined hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people's life because we wanted opulence at the expense of people. And so we repent and we urge you, country, to repent of your greed. And then a bunch of A-list Hollywood stars get up and instead of telling you who to vote for, they repent of their sin because what they say to us as they come up, just imagine if these stars actually stood up and said, we want you to know that we repent and we urge you to repent because what we have done with our own life is to advertise an immorality and a lewdness that is that has literally permeated all of culture. It's soiled all of culture. So we've actually reshape people's view of beauty so that what God says is beautiful. Now, you don't think it's beautiful, and it's because, in part, of our own negligence and sin, and we repent and urge you as a country to repent as well. And suddenly, some of the people from Planned Parenthood, they stand up at the microphone. All of a sudden, you just got all tense on me right there. I don't know why you just did that. And they stand up. And they say, this is the reality. We recognize that there is complexities to human behavior, but the vast majority of people who we have extinguished or extinguished out of convenience, and we know this, that they are people. We know they're people created in the image of God. And we've only seen them as a revenue source. And we repent and urge you as a country to repent of such darkness. And then suddenly a bunch of college presidents, they stand up, school board superintendents, educators, and they say, we, we must repent because we have actually taught for so long. We've sought to take God out of the classroom and to teach a worldview within our own country that ignores the supremacy and sovereignty of God over every single field of study. And suddenly they sit down and a bunch of pastors get up and they say, when we confess our sin, because we've watered down the gospel. In fact, we've not even been teaching a gospel. We've been teaching counterfeit gospels. We've not been teaching you. There's only one way to the father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we repent of our sin and urge you to believe in his son. Can you imagine what would take place? And suddenly the country as a whole, husbands go home and wives go home and they're confessing their sin to their spouse and to their children. As a country, we're repenting of our idolatry and our immorality and our rebellion and our lawlessness and our strife and our anger and our greed. Can you imagine? Habakkuk saw that happen. He saw it happen and it created a seed within his heart that just began to think, it's going to get better. And this is what happens anytime things get better is we just assume that that's now a pattern, that things are always going to get better. That the lives of our children are going to be better than our lives. That, that, that our portfolio and the value of our house is only going to increase in the next decade because we're working hard this decade. And what the Bible teaches is this, and history teaches is this, is that's not the case. I'm not a doomsday prophet. I'm not even a prophet. But I do believe that for those who are the youngest generation at Providence, they are going to have a more difficult time living as a believer than our parents and grandparents. 
It's going to happen. And so as a congregation, we have to be able to train not only ourselves, but the next generation. How do you stand for God in a world that wants to bow to everything but God? And so what happens is he, he's feeling good about this. And then all of a sudden, Josiah goes out and he gets killed in a battle. And his sons do the unthinkable. They reform all of his reformation. And they lead the country straight back into the idolatry and immorality that their dad said, this is wrong. And God said, this is wrong. And Habakkuk gets absolutely torn up about this. In fact, there's a picture that, that I kind of think about when I think of the first two chapters of this book. This is it, okay? This is Habakkuk, right? He literally, is, he is just blown. He, he, he just erupts. And this is what he says in chapter one, verse two. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? For destruction and violence are always before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Isn't it interesting that his day 2,500 years ago is scarcely different than our own. If you've looked at any news this week, you've seen violence in California. You've seen strife and contention. Now it's it's still having, we're meeting right now and people are arguing over votes in Florida. There's lawlessness, there's injustice everywhere we look. And so then suddenly in chapter one, verses five through 11, we saw this last week as God comes and he says, well, let me take the mic, let me speak. You say I'm idle. Oh, I'm not idle. Habakkuk, this is what I'm going to do. I'm raising up the Babylonians, verse 6. And then he describes them for verses 6 through 11. He says they're bloodthirsty, they're evil, they're violent, they're unjust, and they're going to come and they're going to conquer you. They're going to exile my people in order to bring them to repentance. I'm not idle. This is what I'm about. And suddenly we get to our text and Habakkuk is, is, is sitting there and he's thinking, you're, you're going to do what? I kind of think of him in chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4, like that soldier that's just heard some unsavory news from his commanding officer, and he stands up and he says, permission to speak freely? I I know you're over me. I know you're sovereign. I know I'm not even supposed to talk right now, but I can't not talk right now. And he says, starting in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things. They have no ruler. Verse 15, 16, and 17, he then changes pronouns and he talks about Babylon and what they do with the people that God's created. And he says, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his neck. He gathers them as dragnet, so he he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will stand. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. 
And look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. So he answers him a second time. And this is what he says. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. What does that mean? Make sure you write this really clear because once you share with other people, they're going to want to take it to another village so that they hear it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So what are we supposed to do when we know that God is just and we look at God's world and see injustice? And what this passage tells us in particular in chapter two, verse three, is that we are to wait on the Lord. And many of us, we understand, we talk about waiting on the Lord. And sometimes we have this misunderstanding that it means to be idle, to do nothing. That's unlike how we use the word in almost every other case. For example, when you go to lunch today and somebody serves you food, we call them a what? A waiter. And yet they're not idle at all. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord when we know that he's just and we see injustice in the world? How do we wait? This is how we do it. You ready? Number one is this, is we wait on the Lord by praying fervently, by praying fervently. Habakkuk prays like only one can when he is absolutely confident in his relationship with God. He says in verse 12, are you not? Now that phrase, that little rhetorical question is used 40 times in the Old Testament and every time it is used to punish the other person. He's not asking the question, are you everlasting? What he's saying is this, I thought you were everlasting. I thought you were holy. I thought you were too pure to ever even look upon impurity. And this is your plan? You're going to sort out our evil? And you're going to sort it out by using the evil Babylonians? This is like... This is like sorting out our sexual immorality by bringing in Hugh Hefner to teach on fidelity. This is your plan. This is how the Holy One works. I thought you were pure, holy, everlasting. There's a tension within his heart, you see. He looks and goes, these people, they kill people without mercy. And then they worship the net by which they did it. This is your plan. You see, this poor man named Habakkuk is so much like us. He's in between two things that keep moving. They're not going to break, and so he breaks. It's sort of like this orange. This is how I think of this prophet Habakkuk. He's being squeezed. You see, his angst on the basis of what he sees with his eyeballs is restraining his courtesy towards God, his respect and how he speaks towards God. And yet his theology of what he knows is restraining his reactions towards God. His theology won't let him run away from God. What he sees with his eyes is making it very difficult for him to speak in words that are flattering to God. And so here he is with all of his might and he wants to pray. And indeed he does. One of the things that's so beautiful is the next phrase. He says, oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. He's saying, look, this is a personal thing to me. You see, I wouldn't be so upset 
if I thought you weren't holy. But the thing is, is I know you are. And I wouldn't be so upset. In fact, I wouldn't erupt like I am if I thought I could just walk away and just not believe in you. But I know that I can't walk away because you are God. You see, the beauty of Habakkuk, what he teaches us, is that even though we don't understand, we can face Godward. We can take our prayer, we can take our anxiety and translate it into energy to pray. So in application, Providence, let's take our honest concerns to God. Let's take our honest concerns to God. What are you concerned about today? What causes you anguish? You see, here's the reality. We all deposit our anguish somewhere. It goes somewhere. You have to put it on something. You either put it on Facebook. You put it on your spouse. You put it on your friend. You go chop down a tree. Something has to move when you feel anxious and anguished. And what prayer does is prayer looks out through all of the fog and prayer sees God, the one true God, as the principal mover over men and over movers, over kings and over cultures, and chooses to deposit our angst there. You have the power to do something about this. All these other mediums, all these other places, all these other stages and platforms, they're all limited, but you are unlimited. You are everlasting. I know you are. You're the Holy One. You can do something about this. You see, prayer is simply not that flashy. I want to show you this really amazing picture. You ready? That's concrete, okay? Now you go, well, that's not amazing. And why I think it's amazing is this. Prayer is much like concrete. It's not striking. It's just strong. You can build something upon it and it will stand. And this is how it is with prayer. So let me ask you, what concerns you today? Your marriage, your kids, your country, the election? What do you feel angst about? Take that to God. And you don't even have to clean yourself up before you come. You see, the cool thing about God is he can stand before our honest outpourings. Now, this is not a license to malign God. It's an invitation to come to God as you are. You see, God is not intimidated. Have you ever thought about that if God wanted only people to flatter him and to make everyone fear not flattering him, he would have just taken Habakkuk out. And yet he's put his angst, his prayers, his his. His rhetorical question, are you not in the scripture? And the reason that he does that is because he can stand behind it. What he's saying is this. Look, I know that you tend to flail when you're troubled. I I know that you sometimes feel this tension between wanting to honor me and telling me what is honestly on your mind. Sometimes what's honestly on your mind isn't flattering to me. And I want you to know I can take it. So come. Just come. For I'm pleased not when you flatter me or when you maintain perfect emotional self-control. But when you respond in faith to my grace that is the basis of our relationship. Only people who know grace can pray like Habakkuk. Only a person confident in this grace can do this. And only the gospel offers this grace. 
So providence, let's convert our anguish into prayer. The second way that we wait on the Lord is by obeying diligently. You see this in verse one. He says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post. He had an assignment and he knew what that assignment was. There was a place for him to be a post. This is Habakkuk's way of saying, no matter how distraught you feel, don't leave your post. Psalm 37 verse 3 says it this way. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What does this mean? This is what this means. You ready? Whatever God tells you to do, when his voice is clear, keep doing when his voice seems distant. Whatever you've last heard him say when there was not a cloud in the sky, keep doing when it is pouring down rain. When you cannot hardly hear him anymore, when you can't see him anymore, keep doing what he told you to do the last time it was clear. Don't leave your post. And yet leaving our post is exactly what anguish tempts us to do. You see, many people, they lay aside the Bible. They lay aside prayer when they feel anguish because they say, I'm just, I don't get anything out of it. Don't leave your post. John Newton was once asked, he said, can I stop praying if I don't get anything out of it? And he said, if you get nothing out of going to the throne of grace every day, you will certainly get nothing from staying away. Many people abandon fellowship, Christian fellowship, their church, their small group, their life group when they're going through anguish. Don't leave your post. Many people find temptation extremely appealing when their heart is in anguish. It's a quick outlet. You don't leave your post. Many people, their resolve and commitment and even covenant of their relationships with other people, and particularly when those relationships are the cause of the anguish and anxiety, they find that their commitments and their covenant, their understanding of it, it begins to dim. Providence, don't leave your post. For leaving our post, always puts the city at risk. It always puts our family at risk. It puts our church at risk. It puts our life at risk. We wait in the Lord by obeying diligently and there's a special kind of fuel for our obedience. And so let me encourage you to fuel your obedience with perspective. Perspective. You notice what he says. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post. And then notice what he says. I am station myself where? On the tower. On the tower. You see, cities of old were built with towers. The tower was inside the wall. What a tower allowed is for you to get high enough so that you could look and see out to see if a storm was coming or if invaders were coming. It gave you perspective to see. Obedience requires that we put our problems into perspective. The Apostle Paul had a bunch of problems, didn't he? This is what he said in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
See what he's saying there? He says, my sufferings feel so big until I see what's coming. Some of you say, I'm in, I'm in debt. And you know what? That's a problem. And you may be in financial debt. But you know what? The only debt that can sink you forever is sin. And that's been paid for. So it's not that bad. Some of you say, you know, I got a problem. I'm being falsely accused. And that's a real problem. And that's a real strain. It may cause angst and anguish within your heart. But you know what? Jesus Christ endured false accusation so that we who would trust in his accomplishments would be justified and never accused before the Father again. And so it's not that bad. See, The thing you find is this, is that people who have a problem with obedience always have a problem with perspective. They can't see. They can't see the the coming storm that sin causes and they can't see the blessing of obedience. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. What does this mean? It means waiting is not being idle. Waiting is thinking. It's running to Jesus Christ and imagining in Jesus all the hope, all the promise, all the power that now surrounds you because you're in a tower. This is the only way to continue to obey when you look out and you see that everyone else is acting in a lawless way. They do not have the perspective of what's coming, but you do. So run to the tower of Jesus Christ. See all that is available for you there. See all that is coming for those who run to that tower and for those that don't. And then man your post. The third thing we find here about waiting on the Lord is we do so by enduring patiently. Enduring patiently. You notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It's an appointed time. God is sovereign. He's appointed when Babylon will come. And he's appointed when Babylon will fall. You see, Habakkuk had a buddy. His name was Jeremiah. He was another prophet. His name's in the Bible too. They prophesied at the same time to the same people and they were on the same side. They both spent a lot of time crying about things that they saw with their eyes and yet hoping in God. And you know, one of the things that Jeremiah said is once Babylon came in and all the people were then freaking out, he says, listen, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And do you know what happened exactly 70 years after Babylon came and exiled Judah from its land? Persian empire comes in and they wipe out Babylon and King Cyrus and Ezra 1.1 says in accord and fulfillment of the word that God spoke through Jeremiah, he brought the Jews back to their people in Jerusalem. It's appointed. He says, so you got to wait on it. Waiting requires patience. And none of us are patient. <laughs> you see, patience is kind of like dew. Like you see on this leaf right here, where you see the dew that's not fallen from heaven. It's not creeped up from the earth. How does dew get there? Dew arrives when the conditions are right. So what are the conditions in our heart that are required for patience to be born within our heart, within our life? First, as patience springs out of humility. 
It springs out of humility. You see, the more that you and I think about ourselves, the more we think someone should serve us first. See, red lights are a great test of our patience. Some of you say, God, help me to be a patient person. You realize what you're asking him there is, God, would you make them all red? If he gives you all green lights, you will not become a patient person. The red lights that reveals the impatience so that God can then deal with our arrogance that we should not have to wait but the rest of humanity should. It's humility. You see, this is why we freak out. It's because our pride tells us that we're omniscient. If we lose this election, the whole country's going down the drain. I know it. Oh, do you? Do you know it? Lay down the burden of omniscience. And you'll find patience creeping in your heart. The second way that we find patience in our life is this, is that patience springs out of faith. It springs out of faith. You remember Job, he goes through all this trial and he's looking, he's like, I just know God's still involved. And this is what he said, Job chapter 23, verse 10. He says, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. What's he saying there? This is what he's saying, is that when bad things happen, And we meet them with humility and faith in God's ability. Then it turns us into people of poise. We can wait. Now who has the ability to endure patiently? And Habakkuk answers that in verse 4. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his what? By his faith. So what he's doing here is he's comparing the righteous to the unrighteous. One person, the unrighteous, he thinks so highly of himself that he's absolutely certain in his moral accomplishments that he can earn his way. And the other thinks so highly of God's rescuer that he places his faith in the rescuer's accomplishments for his salvation. And it's interesting that Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. As Habakkuk wrote, the righteous shall live by faith. Everything that providence is built upon, the gospel message, was actually preached 500 years before Jesus Christ came to the earth. You see, it's in the gospel that we find a reminder. A reminder that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all contributed to the moral chaos that we see in our country and in the world. We've all contributed. 
In the gospel, we are reminded that God is absolutely just and will punish every sin perfectly. It's in the gospel that we are reminded that God so loved us that he gave his only son to die in our place to punish perfectly for the sins of the world. It's in the gospel that we are reminded that Jesus conquered sin when he rose from the dead. And it's in the gospel that we are reminded that God has the ability to bring blessing out of judgment and salvation out of suffering. And I want you to know that you can trust him today. If you are here today and you look at this text and you say, you know what, there's a lot of stuff here that seems to make sense, but the reality is is that I am banking and have been banking on my own righteousness and yet I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot save myself. The Bible says this, that today you can admit that you're a sinner. You can believe in his son that he sent from heaven to earth who lived a righteous life without sin and yet went to a cross to pay for our sin. He rose from the dead to conquer the grave and our sin. We can admit that we're a sinner. We can believe in him and we can confess him as Lord of our life. And Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, you will be saved. Who is it that has the the power, the resources to endure patiently when we know something that's true about God and we see things within his world that are absolutely unjust and evil? The person who can wait and be a person of poise is the person that rests on Jesus Christ alone. Alone. You can do this today. You see, for those who do trust Christ, you know what he does? He gives us confidence to pray and confidence to obey and confidence to wait patiently. And do you know why? Last verse, Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus tells a parable and he says, there was a person had a bunch of servants. He went away and some of them said, he's not coming back for a long time. We'll live how we want to live. And others said, you know what? We should wake up every single day waiting on the Lord. Because he may come back at any moment. And you know what Jesus says in his parable? This is how he concludes it. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Literally finds them waiting on him when he comes. For truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Do you see what this is saying? Trace the pronouns. When he says, truly I say to you, he will dress himself. That's the owner of the house. That's the Lord that's coming. He will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table and he will come and serve them. You see what he's saying? He says, if you will wait on me in this life, I will wait on you in the next. I will serve you. I will care for you. And the certainty that this is going to happen is because when he was on the earth the first time, he waited on his disciples by taking off the garments of a king. He put on a towel and he washed their feet. He's going to do it again. So providence, 
No matter what happens in this crazy world, let's wait on the king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. The kindness that leads us to repentance. And I pray for those in the room who have never trusted you as Savior and Lord. That you would incline their hearts even now to call out to you in prayer. To admit that they are a sinner. To believe in you and what you have accomplished. And to confess you as Lord of their life. We pray, Father, for your grace in their life. And for your grace in ours. We want to respond now in faith. In worship. And even in generosity, we want people around the world to hear this news. So would you help us to sing and give loudly? We love you. We believe you're sovereign over us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.